Well, I think we've seen it's pretty clear that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. You don't need me to tell you that. The evidence is all around us as we just talked about in our time of prayer. As a recap, in case you're joining us online later today or watching the sermon online, people are dying from a pandemic, especially the elderly and the vulnerable. The economy is broken. Nations are arguing over the cause of the pandemic and politicians are using it for political advantage. Black men continue to die needlessly and in unjust ways. George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery are just the latest examples. And people are even now reacting violently and the hope of seeing some sort of justice in response. Christians all around the world, as we speak, are being persecuted for their faith. I read a story this past week about a lady named Farida in Uganda who converted to Christ, and as a result of that, her business and her home were burned to the ground. And if you need more examples, just turn on the news tonight, and I'm sure you're going to find a few more examples of the reality that this world is broken. It is not the way it's supposed to be. And while this is disheartening for us as Christians, it should not be surprising the Bible has been very clear from the beginning that this world is broken. From Genesis 3 onward, because of sin, things are not how they are supposed to be. So what do we do? What do we do when we become overwhelmed by the brokenness of this world? What do we do when the not-rightness of this world raises its ugly head in an overwhelming way that draws us to our knees in grief and weeping, and lamenting. Well, I'm so glad you asked, because in God's good providence, I think we have an answer for us today in Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2. You guys may know this, but we decide what to preach as a church months in advance of when we actually preach a specific text or a given text. And I'm always blown away how God and his faithfulness continues to bring us to the exact right place at the exact right time to speak a word for us as his people, to encourage us and guide us in the work that he has called us to do. Nehemiah 1 and 2 represents the third act of the Ezra-Nehemiah saga. You may remember that Ezra and Nehemiah were initially presented as one book. And this third act begins in a similar way to the previous two that we encountered as we walked through the book of Ezra. God has placed a faithful servant in a position of influence to move the heart of a king toward God's redemptive purposes. And in this case, he's specifically concerned about the rebuilding of the wall surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And here's how this story unfolds in Nehemiah 1 and 2. Some 13 years after Ezra returned, Nehemiah receives some visitors. Where he is, serving the king, Artaxerxes, as a cupbearer in a royal city named Susa. And the people he received are his brother, Hanani, and some of his friends. And as he receives them, he 
as a, a good Jew would be, is concerned about the work of restoration that's been ongoing. And he asked them, how is everything going? How's the, how's the work? Is, is the city as glorious as I, I imagined it would be? Does it, does it remind you? Is it, does it, is it as golden as it was in the time of, of David and Solomon? He's expecting good news. But his visitors have another answer. And their answer devastates Nehemiah. Here's how they answer him in verse 3 of chapter 1. The remnant there and the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. They say to Nehemiah, no, it's exactly the opposite. The city is not recovered its glory. It's not sitting there as it was in the time of David and Solomon. People have returned, yes. The temple has been rebuilt, yes, but the walls of the city are still in ruins. The gates are ashes. Jerusalem, the holy city of God, has not been restored. And when when Nehemiah hears this, he says in verse 4, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. He's overwhelmed with grief. He's he's lamenting the reality that this city is not the way it's supposed to be. Why? Why is Nehemiah so devastated by this news? Let's, Let's think about this question from a larger theological perspective for a moment, okay? From the whole story of the Bible. The state of Jerusalem was meant to state something about the Jewish people. And the state of the Jewish people was meant to state something about their God. And when one breaks down, the testimony that God designed and that economy breaks down. See, God attached himself to a people. And he said that he would bless them and that then through them, all other nations would be blessed. He miraculously gave them a land. And in that land, he asked them to build a city, a city that would be the focus of their life, both secular and sacred. In this city would be the king. And also in this city would be the temple. And in this city of all cities, in this land of all lands, the glory of God was to be revealed. It was to be a sacred space meant to paint a picture for the entire world of the blessing that would come when a people dedicated themselves to living for the glory of the one true God and submitted fully to his rule and reign. That was the design. But what does it say about God when the land he gave to his people has been overrun with foreign people who don't worship him? When the city that he designed sits in ruins its walls burned, uh, crumbled and gates burned down. What does it say about God when the people that he called out for himself are too afraid to do anything about it because of the opposition that they face? It's hardly an appealing testimony about God. It doesn't really describe blessing in the way that would be inviting to other nations around them so the people sit in shame. They sit in trouble, according to the testimony of these visitors. 
because they have not completed the work that God has given them, a work that is attached to God's larger work of redemption. This city matters. The walls matter because of how they communicate the glory of God. And Nehemiah weeps. This is not how it's supposed to be. It's not right. But praise be to God. He does not allow allow Nehemiah to stay there. He does not allow Nehemiah to stay in his devastation. Rather, God uses this moment of devastation to do a work in Nehemiah and through Nehemiah to help fix what is not right. And therein, I think, lies the impact of this text for us today. As we sit today in heaviness, as we sit today with a full realization that this this world is not right, I believe that God providentially brought us together today to sit before this text to not let us stay there and to use it to move in us so that he can move through us to help his larger redemptive restorative purposes to be used by him as he works to make all things new, to set right what is so wrong in this world. So here's what I want us to wrestle with in the time that we have together today. How does God use these moments when the not rightness of this world comes before us, these overwhelming moments of the the not rightness of this broken world, how does God use them among his people for his redemptive purposes? Three ways I want us to look at this morning from our text that God uses moments like this to do a work in us and through us for his larger restorative work. Firstly, God uses this moment in the life of Nehemiah to remind him of the reason why the world is the way it is. God uses this moment to remind Nehemiah of the tragic reality of sin and the wake of brokenness that it has brought upon the earth. Verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I fasted, I prayed before the God of heaven. I said, oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I, my father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Nehemiah is faced with the reality that something's not right. And as he's faced with the reality that this is not right, he's reminded the reason why it's not right. And the reason why it's not right is because of sin. He's weeping here. He's mourning because he knows why destruction was brought on Jerusalem. 
He knows that God was faithful to his covenant promises. He knows that time and time again, he showed himself to be faithful to the people that he attached himself to. But in spite of God's continued faithfulness, the people of God were unfaithful. And God made a promise to them. So long as you obey my commandments, I'll be your God. I will rain blessing upon you. But the moment you begin to be unfaithful, the moment that you forget your need for me, the moment you begin to worship other gods, the moment you begin to live in sin is the moment that that blessing will cease and I will bring discipline upon you. And boy, did God ever. He brought in foreign countries to defeat the people and destroy the cities that he led them to build. And as Nehemiah sits there in Susa and he hears the reality of Jerusalem, that it is still sitting in the wake of sin, that it's still sitting in the wake of God's judgment, he weeps, he mourns. He mourns that it's the way it is and he mourns the reason why it is the way it is. And then he confesses it. He says, God, you've been faithful. You're a God who keeps covenant. You've evidenced your steadfast love over and over and over again to those who keep your commandments. But we are a sinful people. Israel is a sinful people. My, My family, we're a sinful people. And we need your help. In moments when the not rightness of this world comes before our face, that's a moment to remember that this world is broken and to remember why it's broken. And that's so good for us as the people of God, isn't it? I mean, we can get, we can get so caught up in our lives in Susa that we forget about the reality of Jerusalem. We can get so caught up and the everyday work of our lives is we're, we're serving the king as his cupbearer, as we're going about our business and enjoying what is typically the, the normalcy of life, that we forget that there's something inevitably wrong here, that we forget this is not the world that we were made for. This is not the, the way that we were designed to live. And we can begin longing for this world. We can begin to love this world in a way that is not good for us that distracts us from the larger work that God wants to do in and through us. And so every now and then, God allows for these reminders, these expressions of brokenness to get our attention as his people, to be reminded that this is not your home. You were created for another place. As good as life can be here, there is also many things that are deeply wrong. And you need to be prepared for another place. Sin has corrupted this world. It's corrupted us. And as a result, there's brokenness. And God uses this moment when the not rightness of this world is so evident to get the attention of Nehemiah and to push him to a place of repentance and dependence upon the Lord. And we see that as the second way that God uses 
this moment. Not only does God use this moment to remind Nehemiah of the tragic wake of sin, God uses this moment to drive Nehemiah to the Lord for an answer. To to trust in the promises of God in a moment when he could not understand. Listen, this moment for God was not surprising. It was part of God's larger redemptive work. God allowed this brokenness to happen. God allowed this devastation to happen amongst the people of God to call them to return to him. He said as much in Deuteronomy chapter 4. We can turn there for a moment. Listen to what he says to them in verses 25 to 27 of Deuteronomy chapter 4. When your father, children, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Verse 28, And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the works of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Let's continue. Verse 29, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, And you will find him if you search after him with all of your heart, with all of your soul. When you are in days of tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Now I want you to listen based upon what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want you to listen to the prayer that Nehemiah continues to pray. He says in verse seven, he's confessing sin. We have acted corruptly. We have not kept your commandments, the statutes, the rules you commanded. But look at verse eight. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost part of heavens, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Nehemiah admits that sin is the reason that things are the way they are. Nehemiah admits that we played a part in breaking down what you designed and established. But we also know, God, this is not your ultimate plan. This is not your ultimate design. You don't want us to live in this kind of destruction forever. You don't want us to live in this brokenness forever. No, you have greater plans for your people than this. Yes, It was good for us to experience your discipline. Yes, it was good for us to feel the effect of sin, the danger of sin, so that our hearts wouldn't be further corrupted by sin. But we know there's a promise, and you are faithful to your promises. 
That if we will return to you, if we will learn the lessons of exile, if we will learn the caution of this moment of destruction, and we will come back to you, you will pour out your blessings upon us once again. We know that you will be faithful to this. You promised this to us. So now we are turning to you. We are claiming your promises for you to do what only you can do. And then use us as you see fit. What a blessing from God. That we would be overwhelmed by moments of brokenness like this. That we would recognize our role in creating this not rightness but also recognize our inability to do anything about it. No matter how hard we work in our own strength, we can't move the heart of a king. No matter how hard we work in our own strength, we cannot solve the deep heart reasons why enmity between races exist. No matter how hard we work in our own strength, We cannot solve the issue of sin. But I've got good news for you, friends. God has a plan. Not something that we could design, not something that we could accomplish, but he has made promises in the midst of our brokenness to set things right. And at the right time, he will raise up an appointed person to set those promises in motion to accomplish the restorative work that he has designed. So God uses this moment to remind Nehemiah of why things are the way they are, to drive Nehemiah to God in dependence, to fix what he cannot fix, so that then, thirdly, he can use this moment to prepare Nehemiah for the work that God has for him. And this prayer, at the end, verse 11, we see Nehemiah begin to ask something specific. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And listen to what he says. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now, I was the cupbearer to the king. Who is he talking about? The king. Man introduced sin. And now the world and all of creation is broken. And we are dependent upon God and his promises to make that right. But here's what's incredible about God and his design, his redemptive, restorative design. God in his good sovereignty has elected to use people to do the work that he has designed to do. He has chosen As his plan of restoration and redemption unfolds on this planet, he has chosen to use servants under his power to accomplish his purposes for his glory and their good. And Nehemiah is no exception here. 
Is it surprising to God that Nehemiah is the cupbearer of King Artaxerxes? Is it surprising to God that Nehemiah has favor with this king? Is it surprising to God that at the exact right time, Nehemiah is standing in front of the king when the king's disposition toward Jerusalem has changed? Remember, this same king at one time earlier in Ezra said the building had to stop. He's already played a role in the limiting of Jerusalem being rebuilt. But yet, because Nehemiah was sensitive to the work of God, because he turned to the Lord at the right time and and claimed the promises of God, when God was ready to act, Nehemiah was ready to be used. And he would then lead the people of God to begin the process of rebuilding the city. And we see that in the end of chapter two. He grants, uh, the king asks him as he stands before him in chapter two, why are you sad? He says, why should I not be sad? Verse three, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what are you requesting? And what does Nehemiah do? He prays to the God of heaven. And he says to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, would you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it? And the king agrees. He, he gives him all of these resources. He sends them to Judah. And then Nehemiah goes and he takes an accounting of the walls. He goes around, he looks at the destruction, and then he leads the people of God to begin to rebuild this city. And remember, what's happening here amongst the people of God is meant to serve a larger redemptive purpose. Their work in building this city, their work in building this people within the city is meant to reflect a larger work that God is doing across the entirety of the world throughout the history of man. Remember what I said about the city of Jerusalem, right? The city of Jerusalem was meant to reflect the glory of a people who were meant to reflect the glory of God. And as they rebuild this city, and as they rebuild themselves, as they rebuild this city, they are offering a picture to the world around them of the greater work of rebuilding, the greater work of restoration that God wants to do in and through them for the blessing of all nations. God wants Nehemiah to be about a work that is reflective of his larger work. And in the people of God restoring the city of Jerusalem, they are picturing the larger work of restoration that God wants to do in all of humanity. So God uses this moment of overwhelming not rightness to do something special among the people of God in Nehemiah and the people he leads to remind them of why things are the way they are, to drive them into great dependence upon God and then to act in obedience as a testimony to the world of the greater action of God that he is doing to restore all things 
for his glory. And what about today? Is that how God still works today? As we watch the news and we're overwhelmed by the sickness and the death, as we're overwhelmed by the violence, as we're overwhelmed by the the brokenness of mankind, as we're overwhelmed by the manipulation of our political entities and news entities, as we're overwhelmed by the persecution of the Christian church, as we look around and we grieve and we weep and we say, this is not right. Something is not right about this. Does God still use these moments in the same way? And wouldn't you all agree that this is a special moment, that this is an unusual moment? That there's something unique about this moment that God is using to get our attention? I think God still works in the same way. I think God still uses moments like this to remind us of the tragic wake of sin. Guys, when I saw that video of George Floyd, I wept. I mourned. As I watched videos of cities being destroyed in the wake of it, I wept and I mourned. I wept and I mourned at the reality of it, but more importantly, I wept and I mourned at the cause of it. Listen, if you want to know about the dangers of sin, you just look at what's going on in our country right now. It is a a clear picture of what happens when we forget God, when we turn away from God. It's devastating. And it's a moment for me to reflect inwardly and say before the Lord, Oh God, would you help us? I know I'm a part of this. I know I've sinned. I know I've, I've had some share in the creation of this brokenness. And I got no answers, right? Even as we were praying earlier today, I was praying, God, I know that if I don't say anything, I'm gonna offend some. If I say something, I'm gonna offend somebody. Even when I speak, I'm probably gonna offend somebody with the way that I speak or what I didn't say. I got no answers. I'm offering the best I have right now. I need you to do something that I cannot do. I'm desperate. And don't you know that's God's design for this moment? That's how he redeems this darkness. That's how he redeems this devastation to remind us of the tragedy of sin and then point us back to him. In these moments where we're reminded of the tragedy of sin and that we have no answer to the wake of sin, God is still calling us to turn to him, to weep and mourn, but also to fast and to pray, to claim the promises of God and to remember. This is not surprising to God. It grieves his heart, I have no doubt. But God's not up there surprised, right? He's not sitting up there watching CNN and thinking, how did this happen? 
He's saying, I know how it happened. I warned you of what would happen if you chose to worship created things rather than me. If you chose to love yourself more than you love me. If you, if you made yourself gods in your own image, this is what you would get. I warned you. But guess what? I got a plan. I'm, I got a plan. I've uniquely situated someone in the midst of all of this brokenness, to be raised up at exactly the right time to lead you into restoration. I promised you, way back in Genesis 3, that brokenness would not last forever. And that covenant I made with Abraham, I've been pushing it forward all the way through the Old Testament helping that you would recognize that the work that I am doing is not just for this world. It's not just a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom with a greater king whose name is Jesus. And he's greater than Nehemiah. He wept over the city of Jerusalem, but he wept over it because of its spiritual brokenness. He waited for the right time. He cried out to God. He was completely dependent upon me, saying, not my will, but your will be done. And then as soon as I said it was time, he allowed himself to be taken to a cross and die so that everything that's wrong with this world, the cause of why everything is wrong with this world, sin, Satan, death, could be defeated once and for all, and you would have hope. You would have hope that would transcend this brokenness. Just as God had a plan for the people of God then, he has a plan for us today. And when we're before him in desperation, not knowing what to do, it's a reminder for us that God knew what to do and he's done it. And he uses it. His remembrance of faithfulness to call us to faithfulness. To be used by him to build something here as a testimony to the greater work of restoration that he is doing. Here's what I mean by that. Nehemiah and the people, they went to build Jerusalem because that city was a reflection of them who were to be a reflection of God. Well, on this side of Christ, who are the people of God? Us. And God has called us as his people to be about a work here in this church amongst this people that is a reflection of the greater work of restoration that he wants to do throughout the earth. So as we sit before the Lord in brokenness, as we trust in his goodness and his plans in Christ, then we have to recognize that God has called us to do a work. God has called us to, to build a people that reflect God's greater work that he has been unfolding throughout the history of the world. So friends, let me say this. In this place, all the things that are happening outside should not take place.
We, a gospel people who have committed ourselves to the rule and reign of Christ, should be evidencing to the dark world around us the reality of what it looks like to sit under the rule and reign of Christ. There should not be division between us. There should not be racism among us. There should not be manipulation among us. There should not be carelessness among us. There should not be hatred among us. No, we should be a people who are striving to build in this place a people who are defined by the gospel rather than sin. And as we do that work in here, we become a testimony to the world around us of where it is they can find what they are looking for. Because here's what I know. There are people on the streets of Minneapolis. There are people on the streets of Atlanta. There are people on the streets of Dallas, Texas that are longing for justice, that are longing for an answer to why things are the way they are. And they are longing to know how it can be better. And may they look to the people of God. May they look to First Baptist Church of Irving and find an answer. Because we are working to build in the empowerment of the Spirit a picture of what God wants to do all around the world. And that he will bring to full realization when, the, when Christ returns. Do you know this is not the greatest building of Jerusalem in the Bible? There's a, a greater building of Jerusalem that comes way at the end of Revelation. You see, even this building, even this rebuilding of Jerusalem, even when it's completed, is not the end goal. That city was meant to prepare the people of God for a greater city, a new Jerusalem that would unite a new heaven and a new earth under the righteous rule of King Jesus for all of eternity. And as that city pointed us and the people of God to a greater city, May we as the people of God today point all of the world to the kind of people God desires for himself as a testimony to what can happen when a people trust in God to overcome the effects of sin as only he can and live under his goodness for now and all of eternity. Where are you today? Do you still feel enmity between you and God? Is there still brokenness? Are you lost because you know something's not right and you don't know how to fix it? It is my prayer that you would allow the, war, the Lord to redeem this moment of uncertainty to give you great spiritual certainty in Christ. That you would repent and believe in him as the only hope, the only solution for what plagues us. Church family, would you allow this moment of, of instability, of brokenness, would you allow God to drive us to him, to shake off the longings and the love that we have for this world, 
and to have our hearts situated on him alone, trusting in his promises and his work rather than our own. And then would you let him use us? Would you be willing to be used by God and the empowerment of the Spirit to build a people here who are a testimony to the world around us of the larger work that God wants to do and that he will bring to completion when Christ returns. And only then will justice fully be realized. Only then will things be set right. And that should be where we long as the people of God, even as we strive to live under the reign and rule of Christ today. Wherever you are, would you bow your head? Spend some time asking the Lord to help you know how to respond. Maybe you're overwhelmed with grief today. Turn to the Lord. Run to the Lord. Claim his promises, fast and pray. Find hope in the work that he has promised and has done in Jesus. And then would you commit that we would be the kind of people that God could use as a testimony to the greater work that he is doing in and around us as he works to set things right through Christ. Father, would you help us know you and trust you and be the kind of people you can use to accomplish your redemptive purposes? Would you reign over us even in moments like this, especially in moments like this. For your glory and our good, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads.